my head, I, I don't get it twisted, and I understand the difference between being a minister and being a mayor. I don't ever want to function in such a way that our constituents and the populace of Collegeville feels as though I'm trying to be the minister mayor. I'm simply trying to be the mayor. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Experiencing Christ's love is just the beginning. Pursue your call to love God and love your neighbor at the 2019 CBF General Assembly, June 17 to 21 in Birmingham, Alabama. Join the Cooperative Baptist family as they worship, learn, and grow through innovative training experiences, nightly worship, partner events, and a vibrant exhibit hall with booths, live podcasts, and music. For more information and to register, visit cbf.net slash assembly. In this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective, we're going to have a conversation with Aidsand Wright Riggins. He's the former head of American Baptist Home Mission Societies of American Baptist Churches USA, and he's also now mayor of Collegeville, Pennsylvania. And we'll be talking about both of those types of roles, his longtime ministry as a Baptist pastor, denominational leader, and his work and involvement now as a mayor. I sat down with Aidsand on the campus of Central Baptist Theological Seminary in Shawnee, Kansas, This was back when he was in the Kansas City area in the end of March for the Sheridan Lectures of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. The Sheridan Lectures travel around the country as a way of bringing attention to critical religious liberty issues happening right now. His first address happened on the campus of William Jewell College in Liberty, Missouri on March 26. And then the next day on March 27th, he spoke at Central Baptist Theological Seminary. And so we had this conversation in between those two lectures. We'll talk a little bit about what's happening in those lectures, you can head to bjconline.org to find the Sheridan Lectures page that includes the archived video from his second lecture, and there'll be more content coming from the lectures there on their site soon. So this is an opportunity to have a conversation with someone who's been doing a lot of leadership when it comes to issues of religious liberty, Baptist ministry and evangelism, and racial justice. So here's my interview with Aidsand Wright Riggins. Thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Thank you. It's good to be with you. So we are, right now as we're recording this interview, we're sitting on the campus of Central Baptist Theological Seminary in Shawnee, Kansas, for the Baptist Joint Committee's Sheridan Lectures. Last night, you gave the first round over at William Jewell College in Liberty, Missouri, and it was an excellent presentation. Thank you. You'll give round two tonight, and by the time this podcast is live, they'll be online at BJC's website, so we'll encourage our listeners to go and check out the, the full presentations. But I wonder if you could give us just a couple-minute teaser on the talks so that we can encourage people to go hear the rest. So your talk last night was on what you called right-sizing religious liberty. Yes, I spoke last night about right-sizing religious liberty, and what I was attempting to, to say in that lecture was that the religious and political right were seizing the language of religious liberty and redefining it in such a way that it turned religious liberty on its head and in many ways leads to a discrimination against religious minorities and others. So that was what we talked about last night. And tonight here at, at Central, I want to talk in a similar vein about race, religion, 
and resilience and how race and religion have been a problematic discourse in this country since its founding and some of the problems that arise from that, but how at the same time religion and religious liberty can be used as a source of resistance to racial injustice and the lack of religious liberties. While you're talking about that, I happen to see that your sweatshirt, you're, we're taking a little comfortable before this yeah. evening. You have got 1619, 1619, yes. 1619, our ancestors. And this is a big year. It's 2019, the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in what is now the United States. That's right. been 400 years in this country since Africans landed in what is now Hampton, Virginia, 20 or so Angolans who came in an English warship that had pirated slaves from another ship and then used their labor to, to build this country. And the fact that for 250 years after that, Africans were enslaved in this country and then followed by Jim Crow and now moving into mass incarceration of people of color. I just think it's really important that all of us commemorate this year, remember this year, not just as African Americans, but as Americans and thinking through what that really means for our national identity and ethos. And while saying that, to also celebrate the fact that there has been some progress and there has been reasons to celebrate the achievements of African Americans in this country and to remind ourselves all of us, that the, the battle's not over yet, that we still got a lot of work to do. Right me of your first talk, you were connecting a lot of these topics, and I think you're going to do that even more in the second round of, of religious liberty and race. And so, for instance, there was the example of the Supreme Court decision recently in February. The yeah. five conservative majority allowed the state of Alabama to execute an African-American Muslim man yes. without his spiritual leader yes. present, even yes. though Christian inmates have been allowed to have a Christian chaplain. Yes. This, this, this fellow, his name was Dominique Ray. He was convicted, never protested his guilt for the rape and murder of a 15-year-old girl. He was to be executed on February 7th of this year, and he made two requests. One request was that his imam, Dominique Ray, had become a Muslim about 15 years ago, 13 years ago, and about five or six years ago came into conversation with his current imam who was his spiritual advisor. And the two requests that he made was one, he wanted his imam to be in the death chamber with him when he breathed his last, last breath, and he did not want the Protestant chaplain there. This was in the state of Alabama. They refused his request. It went to a court of appeals. The court of appeals did initially say, well, you know, if he were a Christian, he would be able to have these benefits, but because he's a Muslim, the state has in fact denied his benefits. That seemed to be a victory for the attorneys and for Mr. Ray. But then he went to the Supreme Court, and very swiftly the Supreme Court denied him those rights. And so the concern that I have from a religious liberty perspective is that feels to me like to be a preferential treatment and, and a movement toward the establishment of, of religion and then the denial of his own particular religious beliefs. And to me, and again, I'm just really beginning to explore these concepts, but to me is one more brick in, in the structure of what I see as, as Christian nationalism, 
uh, a country that is kind of on the road to, to defining ourselves more dominantly as a Christian country, and I think that that's dangerous. And particularly as a, as a white Christian. A white Christian, yes, of, absolutely. Yes, yes. Well, you bring a wealth of experience in Baptist life to these talks. In addition to serving as a pastor for two decades, you also spent almost 25 years as the CEO of American Baptist Home Mission Society. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, could you tell us a little bit about ABHMS? Sure. ABHMS was founded in 1832. American Baptist Home Mission Societies is the domestic mission arm for the American Baptist Churches USA. It defines itself in terms of uh, working with ministries of discipleship, community, justice. It spans things all the way from providing support and oversight for nine seminaries, 16 different colleges, working with 1.5 million American Baptists, homes and hospitals, a wide variety of, of, of entities. But the thing that I think is perhaps most unique about the American Baptist Home Mission Societies and more broadly the American Baptist Churches USA is the racial ethnic diversity of the denomination. I believe it to be true that there is no racial ethnic majority that worships in ABC on a Sunday morning. Which I believe is the only Protestant denomination in the United States that can claim that. that. That's, what I, that's what I keep hearing. At yes. least I, that's what I keep telling that's people. That's what I see. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also what's important about that, not only just the racial, and I, perhaps this is one of the reasons why I think about religious liberty is so important, because it's not just the racial ethnic diversity in American Baptist churches, but it is also the theological diversity in American Baptist churches. I mean, we have... We have churches and individuals that I would describe as Bible-thumping, fighting fundamentalists on the one hand, to churches with, with practically no Christology, no Jesus, and just coming together to socially engage on a Sunday morning. And, but miraculously, this family still holds together, and I think it does so largely because it, it believes in those freedoms that uh, Buddy Walter Sheridan spoke about in terms of Bible freedom and church freedom and soul freedom and church freedom. So I think that those are important things and that I think American Baptists have embraced. And so I was privileged for 24 years to sit at the helm of leadership of ABHMS and share leadership with other national executives. And part of your ministry during that time included serving on the BJC's board. It did. Including a term as chairman. It did. I was privileged to serve for about 20 years on the board of the Baptist Joint Committee. Really proud and privileged to have been its chair of the board and then chair of the search committee during one of its searches for executive director from the transition from James Dunn to Brent Walker. So those were kind of my opportunities to become baptized as a, as a Baptist. I, I had said, in fact, in my lecture last night that for whatever reason, the American Baptist Seminary that I, was, that I went to was related to at that time, perhaps because of many other things that were happening in the world, did not have a strong program in Baptist history or religious liberty. So in many ways, my time with the Baptist Joint Committee became my substitute education that really helped me to more positively come to understand and appreciate Baptists and being uh, sitting at the table with not only the diversity among American Baptists, but the diversity of the Baptist family, as that board is made up of so many other families of Baptists as well, and coming to see how important it was to 
not only tolerate others, but to embrace others and, and, and appreciate their perspectives. Well, I want to note that you are not just the Reverend Dr. Wright Riggins. You are also the Reverend Dr. Mayor Wright Riggins. Well, let, let me let me let me let me let me <laughs> straighten that out just those? a little bit. I, I separate <laughs> I separate those, and that's important to me. <laughs> I mean, we tease each other. My my, my granddaughter calls me the Reverend Dr. Mayor, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the Reverend Dr. H. N. Wright Riggins in terms of the 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 ordained hat that I wear. But I'm just also pleased to serve as, as a mayor, where I'm just Mayor Ace or Mayor, mayor Wright Riggins. I try to separate those. I was just telling a group of students the other day how my wife and I, had, we had gone to a service of commissioning and, and, and welcoming a, a new Baptist minister, a woman. And oftentimes, I don't often wear a collar, a clergy collar, but on this occasion I wore a clergy collar just to remind myself that, yeah, this is part of my identity and to that service. But then on the way home, we were eating at one of our favorite spots where we're very well known in Collegeville. And my wife was reminding me as I was getting out of the car to at least take the clergy tab out of the clergy collar shirt that I was wearing. Because we did, I don't want to, I don't want to confuse people. Although in my head, I, I don't get it twisted and I understand the difference between being a minister and being a mayor. I don't ever want to function in such a way that our constituents and the populace of Collegeville feels as though I'm trying to be the minister mayor. I'm simply trying to be the mayor in that setting who happens to have a background in ministry and who happens to have a faith. But I, I welcome and affirm and applaud every other political perspective and religious perspective as well. You got it right where I was actually going to ask yeah. you was how do, how do yeah. you manage these two roles and, and even just with uh, kind of me joking about the titles you, you went right mm-hmm. there but I also I kind of like that that imagery of, of removing the collar I don't know I was thinking of like Clark Kent and Superman you know, it just changes the glasses <laughs> yeah there we go person. and nobody will notice <laughs> <laughs> right so you were elected in 2017 yes as you you mentioned in Collegeville Pennsylvania yes I wonder if you could talk a little about your motivation what led you to this decision to run. There are a number of things, but the, fir- the first motivation really had to do with the vitriol and the divisiveness that I saw at the national level during the 2016 national campaign. It began to sicken me how I saw neighbors turn on each other as a result of the national discourse. It reminded me of parents fighting in front of the kids and then kids beginning to to emulate and, and, and act that out in their own place. And I began to see how so many of my neighbors, particularly those who were marginalized or felt marginalized either for racial or religious reasons, were feeling. And I, I thought that while it would be a wonderful idea to become mayor of Collegeville, much more important to me was it was important to campaign for mayor of Collegeville to have a different kind of discourse and conversation in the community so that my neighbors could see that in spite of differences, Republican, Democrat, Baptist, Catholic, Muslim, Christian, we could become a different kind of community. So that was was really the, the first motivation for running. The second motivation for running for me really had to do with my granddaughter who lives with us, or my granddaughter, who we adopted as our daughter. I I wanted her to say, she had always seen me as being successful. She had always seen me as being successful. When I went into that campaign, my campaign manager and the Democratic big wig 
told me I had only about a 20% chance of winning. Okay? But I thought it was important that my granddaughter see me fail. Well, you failed at that. But you won. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I, yeah, but yeah, but I really, I really said, because I wanted, I wanted her to see you don't win at everything. Right, right. You don't. And, and there, but you can, there can be resilience. She's seen other examples, but I really thought I wasn't going to win. And I wanted her to say that that's okay. But, and so I'll I just say that to say, I think that that's the same message that we try to give with regards to issues of racial justice and, and religious liberty issues as well, that we don't always win. We don't always succeed in what we're doing, but we have to continue to stay in the battle. Keep our eyes open. Last night I was talking about staying woke. we got to stay woke with regard to these issues and not get weary in what we're doing because it's not a short-term battle. It's a long-term game. So I ran because I'm, I'm in it for a long term and trying to be an example and trying to model a different kind of way of being in the world that I think is just important. Yeah, I think that's a really important thought about politics. And sometimes we try it one time and it doesn't work, then we move on. Yeah. And you're talking about that long game. And again, I'm reminded because you're wearing the sweatshirt, you know, mm-hmm. 400 years. 400 years. You know, King talked about the arc of the moral universe bending towards justice, bend towards but justice. that's a slow bend. It's a slow bend. It's, yeah. it's a real slow bend. Yeah. And, and not only is it a slow bend, but it's a bend that sometimes turns back on itself. It's amazing to me. My gosh, the, the things I'm talking about and the things that I'm doing and the battles that I'm waging in 2019 were the same, or many ways the same battles we were waging in, in, in uh, 1969. And, and some of those battles we were waging because we had knocked the opponent down, but we didn't knock the opponent out. We made tremendous strides with regards to rights for our people of color, for women, for gay, lesbian, but those were not knockouts, those were knockdowns. And the most dangerous point in a battle is when you have knocked the adversary down, but not knocked him or her out, because they then say, oh my gosh, the only way that we can win this battle is to knock you out. And I think that a lot of the fallout that we're beginning to see now really has to do with the pushback from gains that these communities have made in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond, and now there's a pushback to turn it back. So the, the Make America Great Again there is really, in my estimation, a move towards moving back to days when these benefits for previously and somewhat marginalized people to move them back to a place where they didn't have any these things in the first place. Well, you, you talked about one of the, your motivations of running was you were concerned about the nastiness and the climate yes. in our culture. And, and you also experienced some of that in your campaign. With yeah. the, the anonymous letter that was passed out in the community attacking you for wanting to resettle refugees, claimed that you hated America and the First Amendment. I mean, clearly racism, bigotry is, is very strong in our politics today. We've seen that at larger levels. But I wonder about that local, that personal level, having experienced that in your campaign. I did experience that in my campaign. In fact, I was trying to find that letter. I didn't know that you knew about that letter. But it was, uh, it was, it was incredibly painful, personally painful, because by and large, I live in what I would consider a wonderful community. A wonderful community where 
the neighbors talked to each other, were nice to each other, great place to live, and, and so forth. But every once in a while, and it happened during this campaign, every once in a while, something very ugly happens. And in spite of having been black all my life, I'm oftentimes surprised still when that ugliness raises its head. It always seems to just come out of the blue when you least expect it. So to be running an incredible, from my perspective, to be running an incredibly positive campaign, to never saying anything negative about my opponent in the campaign, to basically saying I'm not running against anybody, I'm running for something, to then to, to get this very ugly, nasty, racist letter that was distributed in the community was, was, a, was a shock to me. But I say all that to say, but it's not about me, because I realize that just as this happens to me, it happens to others. I was explaining to someone the other day that another motivation for my running had to do with my Muslim neighbor who has suffered a lot of discrimination and vitriol and who felt powerless and emasculated and dehumanized as a result of some of that treatment. I know that there are people who either feel that they don't have the capacity to fight back, are fearful of fighting back, are fearful of standing out, and for whatever reason God has given me just a little extra measure of, of not being as afraid of what might happen to me as maybe some others are. And that's not to say I'm not afraid. But I, I, I've, seen, I've seen my parents and what others have suffered, and I cannot imagine that I would possibly suffer as much for standing out as what they have. So that's why I try to stand up and do what I do. Well, you've talked a little bit about how you, you try to keep your roles separate. Yes. But I wonder, serving on this now this other side of that church-state mm-hmm. line, how has that impacted your understanding of religious liberty and some of these church-state issues? Well, I'm not sure that it has changed my, my perspective on that. I mean, I really do try to just keep those roles separate it is a big piece. I function as mayor. It becomes a little bit more difficult because I, for the first two years after my retirement, I had less, it's interesting, I had less engagement in, in church work. It's been interesting to me that the church has seemed to have a renewed interest in me speaking and being engaged, I think, because of my role as mayor. I will go to those events, and sometimes it's difficult trying to figure out, you know, am I, how am I speaking to them? Am I speaking to them as a, a Baptist preacher who's been preaching for over 50 years, or am I presenting as a mayor in those church settings? But I, I try to be, as best I can, keep those roles separate. You've lived and ministered in different contexts. You were in California yes. for, for a couple of decades as a pastor. You've been in Pennsylvania for longer than that. And here we're sitting in Missouri and Kansas. And I wonder, have you noticed regional differences? Okay. <laughs> Not just that. <laughs> when it comes to particularly religious liberty, some of these church-state oh. issues. Obviously, there are some oh. other regional issues. But as we're thinking about religious liberty and some of the issues that you're talking about here during these lectures, I wonder what kind of regional impact you've seen on that. I think probably what I would say, I'm not sure if it's so much, I think it's tangentially related to religious liberty. What, what I notice 
and particularly as a formerly executive director of American Baptist Home Mission Societies, we had 35 different regions all over the country. What I noticed was religious culture. What I noticed was religious culture where the religious culture in the South or in the Bible Belt and somewhat in the Midwest was much more tangible than religious culture in other parts of the country. And I also noticed, which was interesting to me, um, I won't say what particular region this was, but at one point an African-American president of our denomination, myself, went on a speaking tour in one area in the South. And we knew that theologically and politically we were saying radically different things than what was being said in that region in the South. But it was interesting that the African-American cultural religious style was so similar to the religious style of the South that they heard our cult, they were able to, not, if not embrace, but able to listen to a different theological and political message because they heard it through the cultural lens of African-Americans that sounded and felt so similar to their cultural lens. And so that, that's kind of amazing to me to see how that happens. And then on the other hand, I've had the exact flip side of that, where coming from the, the assumptions, the assumptions oftentimes, and particularly uh, some Euro-American settings, some Euro-American settings I find myself I think they're expecting one thing of me because of looking at the color of my skin, knowing that I'm a black Baptist, but, but not being aware of the bicultural fluency and experiences that I have had as a Baptist minister. I mean, I, I, I was educated in a predominantly, in fact, I was the only African-American in my class at an American Baptist-related seminary. I did my field work in an all-white congregation, so able to have a certain degree of bicultural fluency. I just mentioned that to say that one of the advantages, I think, of most people of color groups in this country is most of us have a degree of that, of being able to code switch and go across cultures, and to be able to relate in different ways. But unfortunately, because of segregation and the way we structure our relationships, Many Euro-Americans do not know how to do that or feel comfortable being able to do that because they don't have that much experience with it. You know, so many of our, of our churches, not just individual churches, but then our denominations, particularly yes. outside of American Baptist Churches USA, are racially homogeneous. Yes. And so then we don't even have that opportunity to experience and to hear and perhaps be discomforted yes. by different religious cultures. Right. And so that segregation, I think, even in our churches seems to be something that you've been trying to model a way of, of how do we cross these boundaries that are dividing us. Right, right. And now let me just say in that, in that, that vein, the, another organization that I'm, that I'm connected with is the New Baptist Covenant. Yes. And we'll be making some announcements in the, the next few weeks in, in terms of some, some changes that are happening there. But one of the things that the New Baptist Covenant attempts to do is to intentionally bring together churches against that racial ethnic divide and, and oftentimes across those theological divides, and intentionally have conversations to be able to do just that, 
to, for us to get to know each other in different kind of ways and choose concrete projects to work on that can be transformative of the communities. Unfortunately, we still divide ourselves into communities based upon racial preferences or racial discrimination. Our school districts, our communities, uh, and hence our churches are that way. And that's why all of our denominations have to be very intentional about bringing all people together, about having these conversations, and then quasi-denominational structures like the New Baptist Covenant providing these kind of opportunities and what was happening in the Baptist Joint Committee and bringing these people together to be able to have those kind of conversations because until we can hear and have dialogue with each other, we're still going to be in the same mess that we've always been. Thank you so much for your prophetic words that you've been giving, your practical ministry that you've, you've modeled, for being here with us on the program. It's exciting to be able to interview two people in one show. We had the, the Reverend Dr. Wright Riggins, and then we had the Mayor Wright Riggins. So I just take my glasses That's off. That's right. Take them off. Glasses and collar would be great. Superman, right. but, uh, which one's Clark Kent? But I really appreciate your time and all that you've been doing, and thank you so much for being here with thank us. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. You can learn more about the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty at bjconline.org. From there, they have a special page on the shirt and lectures, and they'll have some more content coming to that page soon. You can learn more about the American Baptist Home Mission Societies at abhms.org. And you can learn more about the New Baptist Covenant at newbaptistcovenant.org. That news that Aitzan mentioned there near the end of the interview that was going to be coming from New Baptist Covenant has since come out. He will now be the co-director of the New Baptist Covenant. This is an effort that was launched in 2008 to help Baptists cross racial, denominational, and ideological lines. And so I, I think as you heard in the interview, Eight Sand is well-equipped to help provide leadership in an even greater role to this movement. As always, you can find us at wordandway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform to write a positive review to help more people to find the show. If you have any comments or feedback about the program, you can email me at bkaler at wordandway.org. And if you'd like to give to support this program, you can head to wordandway.org and hit the donate button. Anything you give there will help the production of this program, as well as our monthly magazine and website. Thanks for listening.